Brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. Sunday. Friends, let us pray. Gracious God, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts and minds will be pleasing and acceptable unto thee, our guide and our destination. Amen. I love the book of First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, Pat just did a marvelous job with the reading from Thessalonians that we heard, um, and she nailed all the pronunciations, uh, and that one is tricky. Um, but the reality is that of Thessalonians, we know a little bit about that church in Thessalonica, in Greece, um, but we know that this letter that Paul wrote was one of his first. He wrote this early in his career. And in it, it's a little bit different from some of his later letters that he writes. He's less concerned about church discipline and a little bit more concerned with church hospitality and welcome. And that makes sense if you think about it because this is a church that has only recently been founded and he wants them to be uh, not suspicious of their community but rather with open arms share everything that he has taught them. He says to them, for the people of those regions, Report about us what kind of welcome we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So Paul is celebrating their hospitality, their spirit of welcome. And he is, again, uh, still young enough in his career where he hasn't gotten sort of grumpy about the way that the churches are behaving. And it's a beautiful letter. It's filled with joy uh, and celebration. Jesus is not receiving such celebration, welcome, or hospitality today in the temple. He is being put to the test. And not only is he being tested by uh, people who are part of his own community, but they bring along the police uh, just in case he steps far enough out of the line where he might get himself arrested. Because to tell people to stop paying their taxes was then, as it is today, a revolutionary act. It was an act against the government. It was sufficient enough to get you killed. Um, today, we're not killed if we don't pay our taxes, but they're definitely going to take away your stuff. As I'm fond of reminding people, the IRS doesn't really care how you get your money. They just want to make sure that you get it to them. There, there are people in prison today on tax evasion charges because they didn't pay the taxes on money that they earned by selling large amounts of drugs. You would think that they would be in prison for selling drugs, but oh no, no. They're in prison because they failed to file their tax forms correctly. And the IRS, again, doesn't care how you got the money, they just want to make sure that they get their cut. For Jesus, this age, uh, this oppression that he's experiencing under the boot of uh, Roman rule, uh, it exists to send money to the West, to Rome, to Caesar, to build up this empire. And so there are some who read this story as Jesus kind of clowning on the Pharisees a little bit, on the temple authorities. See, there were two different monies in circulation at the time. One was the money that was minted in Judea in that region, uh, and the other was a Roman coin. And when Jesus says, you know, show me a, the coin that you would use to pay taxes, well, of course, the individual asking the question pulls out a Roman coin and not a Judean coin, and the, the, the gig is up. It shows that he's a plant. He's an agent of the, of the outsiders. Uh, and it reveals that he's the bad guy, so to speak. Uh, I think that there's a little bit more to this than that. 
again, I come back to this idea that our safety, if there is such a thing, is not going to be found in material security. The money that we have in circulation today, I actually went to get my wallet because I wanted to make sure that I had, I had some. I've got some money here. There's old George Washington. I've got him on the front. We don't spend a whole lot of time really looking at it, but this is a pretty weird little thing uh, if you actually take a look at it. Um, I'm always amazed by the conspiracy theorists who miss the weird stuff that's right in front of us. I mean, you've got the money, you've got George, he's on there. Um, and you've, you know, there's a Federal Reserve note, uh, and there's some cool uh, ink and whatnot. Have you ever seen um, Canadian money? It's amazing. It's like made out of plastic. It looks like it came off a spaceship. You know, we're still printing stuff on paper. And on the back, you know, there's an eagle, which, whatever, eagles are cool. Um, it's got a pyramid with a giant eyeball on the top. Anybody know what that means? I don't know. It's the weirdest thing on earth, and nobody seems to talk about it. It's just hanging out there. There's some, uh, it's like an all-seeing eye with Novus Ordo Seclorum, uh, the Great Seal. Um, that's pretty weird. Uh, am, I, am I getting my crazy? Um, I think that the amount of faith that we put in this thing should cause us to examine it a little bit more closely. I also love the fact that it's adorned with spider's webs. Uh, I, uh, there's some symbolism there. Spider webs covering the thing. What's the purpose of a spider web? It's to trap people, right? They put it right there on the money. <laughs> it's kind of right there on display. I think Jesus is pretty concerned about our relationship with this thing. Uh, because this thing can do a lot. It can get you a cheeseburger. Um, it can um, help a person if they're in need. Uh, uh, but the, the one thing I've never seen it do is get someone into heaven after they die. Um, I don't think that it has that kind of power. Uh, and I spend a lot of time thinking about that kind of stuff because I want what's best for all of you. Unfortunately, uh, in the time that Jesus is preaching, money has the same uh, power over people that it holds this day. Um, this idea mm, that this stuff is somehow going to make us safe, that this is somehow going to, in the words of Paul, save us from the wrath that is to come. We said, um, we said goodbye in this past season of our life together to a couple of really great men from this church who I, I only got to know them at the ends of their life. Uh, we had Jerry Krause's funeral on, on Friday, and I want to thank all of you who helped make that possible. And we said goodbye to Pete Post uh, pretty recently as well. Both of those guys, uh, both of them military veterans, uh, both of them absolutely hilarious, uh, lousy dancers, um, but really, really, really great ushers and greeters and men who stood waiting by the door to welcome you in. As I understand it, and I may get them switched, uh, Jerry Krause kind of welcomed you in upstairs, and then Pete Post would welcome you downstairs, and they would work together and conspire to get you into the fellowship hall and then into membership in the church. And, uh, and they would also work uh, together with Jack Belke to make sure that our congregational meetings are brief. Uh, so God bless them. <laughs> 
But I, meet, I met so many guys my own age at those funeral services, and uh, one thing that I heard over and over and over and over again was that they were the kind of guy that you would aspire to grow up to become. And I think about the, the, the things that we talked about when we spoke about the blessings uh, that, their, that their lives were, and, and, and the, the, the subject of money, it, it didn't come up. It just was never mentioned. Um, it, it was always their joy and welcome and hospitality um, and their good humor and their kindness and the way that they wouldn't hesitate to greet a stranger. I think that um, so often we believe or we're fooled into believing that the stuff that's in here is actually what's going to give us a good life. Or that if we had enough of this, we would be safe. We'd finally have our act together. Christians, um, the book's pretty clear. You're not going to get your act together uh, on this side of the grass. Uh, you can worry about it. You can fret over it. But there is no point at which you will be able to say, I have arrived. Now I am safe. And there are no more problems that will assail me. And tomorrow is going to be filled with sunshine and lollipops. The reality is that when you wake up tomorrow morning, you will have tomorrow morning's problems to deal with. And you do not know today what they will be. And this stuff, for as useful as it can be, and I don't mean to, to say that we should you know, abandon. I used to get up here and take out a $20 bill and rip it up as an object lesson. Uh, and and the, the, that little uh, trick has kind of lost its sway. Um, because I've done it too many times. The reality is that if we worship money, we're going to get all of the benefits that come with worshiping money. You may get uh, some really cool stuff. You may get your picture uh, in the news or God help you on social media. You may get uh, some delicious meals, but the, the Bible says that you will lose. You will also lose. What will you lose? A life for the ages. Uh, I think the kind of life that we talk about wanting to actually have when we grow up, which we won't ever actually do, because everybody knows that being an adult is just pretending that you know what you're doing. Sufficient enough that children look up to you. <laughs> Paul is beseeching these new churches to show kindness and hospitality, to open their doors wide and share the good news, the gospel, the good news that it is going to be okay. There is a fear of scarcity that it was just as real in the days of Paul that it is today. But there were also people, men like Paul and Timothy and others, who believed that the world was not a place of scarcity, but a place of abundance. That rather it was the powers and principalities, the empires, that kind of just rigged the system to make it feel like there wasn't enough to go around. That those were deceits, those were tricks that were being played on us. And that we would wake up to the truth through the good news of Jesus Christ that there is enough to go around. That we do have everything that we need. And that anyone who says that we don't is probably trying to separate us from the stuff that's in here. Well, it is true that just because something is old doesn't make it true. That's important. That's important. 
A lot of stuff out there gets bought and sold because it's old. There are a lot of people out there who think that if we could just get to the oldest version of this book, the original letters in red, then that would be the truest version of this book. That doesn't appear anywhere in this book. The flip side is true, of course, as well, that just because something is new doesn't make it good or better. I, myself, hold the entire Enlightenment in suspicion. Are we better off? Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> but I do know that, that Paul and that Jesus want us to value hospitality, giving, openness, joy, compassion, the fruits of the Spirit, over, over and above the love of money. This wrath that Paul speaks of, the wrath that is to come, it's very sexy to imagine it in terms of oh, book of Revelation, end of the world, end times, madness, cats and dogs living together, all that kind of stuff. Now, I think that the wrath that we find is rather something much more mundane. It is isolation, depression, loneliness, addiction, the vices that beset us and steal joy from the days of our lives, and it steals joy from the lives of those around us. The wrath that is to come needs to be understood as consequential and not retributive. This is very, very important. So important, in fact, that I'm going to close with it. It is a curious side effect of Americans' relationship with, I think, money and material wealth that causes us to imagine God's wrath as retribution. You do a sinful thing, uh, whatever it may be, uh, take your pick, and then God uh, finds out and he's going to slap your hand for doing that thing. The reality is that the Bible describes the wrath of God as a consequence of an action, not a retribution for an action. When you put your hand on a hot stove and you burn it, you didn't get burned because the stove is angry at you. You got burned because the stove was hot. The wrath of God is a consequence of actions. In the same way that 2 plus 2 equals 4, showing inhospitality or anger to strangers causes you grief and pain. Now the hard thing for Americans to understand, especially for Americans, is that this is a consequence in the Bible, not just for individuals, but very specifically for nations as well. Throughout the Hebrew Bible and elsewhere in the New Testament, we hear that we're not supposed to put our faith in money, and we're not supposed to put our faith in horses and chariots, in military power, in the strength of the fist. For if we do, God will pour out calamity upon us. When we understand that this is consequential and not retributive, we start to see the arithmetic that's at work in the world around us. I can stand up in front of churches and councils and general synods and all sorts of groups of clergy and laity alike and tell them that if you open up your church to the community around you, if you serve without hesitation, if you approach the poor in your neighborhood with an open hand instead of suspicion and doubt, you will prosper. Your church will grow. Your offering baskets will turn into offering buckets and you'll be fine. 
But if you choose instead to turn into the world by the world's own terms and treat the church like a business or treat the building like it's a banquet hall, try to become the landlord of this place, you will experience the consequences of that, which is um, diminishment, loneliness, isolation, and hostility. A lot of times they say, show me the numbers, and I can show them cases of churches that have thrived. But it doesn't make good economic sense. It doesn't make sense to give things away and then expect the universe to somehow magically cause you to prosper. But that's the place where faith has to meet us. That's the step that we need to take. Faith means hope. It means saying that even though this open-handed and warm approach to a hostile world appears on paper to make lousy economic sense, yet my faith says that if I take this step, I will prosper. All the economists in the world and all the bankers and certified public accountants and others can say it doesn't work that way. That's not how compound interest works. Well, I don't know how compound interest works. I'm a liberal arts major. But I do know that being a person for whom hospitality is your practice and openness towards people and a refusal to let your heart be dominated by this stuff, by money, I know that that causes the day to be filled with joy and miracles and things that are worth seeing, relationships that are worth having, and days that are worth living. Paul seems to get grumpier as he gets older. He gets cynical in his later letters. But this idea that it is by our practice of welcome, even when it's hard, even when it would be so much easier to just say no, it is this practice of hospitality and welcome and openness to the stranger that saves us from the wrath that is to come. The wrath that is not retribution for bad behavior, but rather a consequence of choosing a close-handed approach to the community around you. We're going to be a church that continues to say yes when many other churches say no. There may be a time in our life together where we are the only church that says yes when all of the other churches say no. And the only thing that I can promise you is that you will see miracles. You will experience growth and joy, a deepness of relationship that is worth knowing in this life. I can't promise it'll be easy. Nothing worth doing ever is. But I've seen it work, and I know that it does. And my faith informs me that being the church that says yes means welcoming Paul and Timothy. Welcoming the wanderer and then celebrating, celebrating the joy and the gifts that they will invariably share with all of us. So let's be a church that says yes. Yeah. And then if it doesn't work, we can always change direction. See, it's a secret is I know it'll work. Brothers and sisters, let's be the church that says yes. Amen. Amen. <laughs>